0: In one of the books I'm working my way through these days, entitled The Great Evangelical Recession, the author recounted a story that took place on February 15, 1953. He writes, as the sun began settling on the Florida coast, a swarm of more than 100 race cars roared around the Daytona course. Former moonshine runner, and NASCAR legend Fonnie Flock held a one-minute lead over second-place driver Dick Rathman. It was the final lap, and there seemed to be no way Flock could lose. That's when his eight-cylinder engine began to sputter, and halfway around the final lap, his Oldsmobile race car stalled completely and coasted to a standstill. His one-minute lead quickly disintegrated as the crowd blinked in unbelief, for Fatih Flock had run out of gas. Can you imagine? That story piqued my interest. In fact, I wondered if drivers before him and some after him had had the same problem, with running out of gas, so it motivated me to do my own little research, and I typed in, and I admit it, I typed in for the very first time in my search engine the word NASCAR. <laughs> Some of you have that in your favorites, I know, but for me it was the very first time. And, and I found out that, that it's not all too uncommon a problem. By the way, i got to tell you, one of the men in our church came up to me a couple of months ago. He's certified, and he's trained to take people, give them a brief training session, and then take them to one of the major racetracks, NASCAR racetracks in the country, and you can literally go around that racetrack on your own. And he came up to me and he said, Stephen, you know, I got to tell you about this, and I want to tell you, anytime you want to get out on the racetrack and take it up to 100 miles an hour, you let me know. I thought, man, that would be fun. But then I thought, you know, I do that every day on Penny Road, so... (laughs) teasing. Anyway, I did a little NASCAR research and, and, and found out that major competition drivers have been known to run out of gas. One story where one professional driver, a couple of years ago, a major televised race, ran out of gas in the final laps. Another driver in first place on the last and final turn a few years ago ran out of gas, but was able to coast across the finish line and win. That was cutting it close. The reason they run out of gas is simple. Their wives are not there to remind them to fill up. (laughs) No, that's not it. That's not it. The race team does what's called gambling on gasoline. In other words, they intentionally stretch it to the fumes. They want to limit those pit stops as much as they can. I learned those pit stops are only 10 seconds long. At least that's what I said in the first hour. Second hour, I had a guy come up to me afterward who's leaving from our congregation, moving to Charlotte this week, who's been inducted into the Hendrick auto racing team. It was a little intimidating. You never know. I'm giving an illustration. I don't know what I'm talking about. And... (laughs) We have professionals in the audience. He said, Steve and pit stops are typically 12 seconds long because they'll change the tires, do mechanical adjustments, feed the driver, and most importantly, refuel the race car. But even though it's just a few seconds, they have, before each major race and competition, the teams put together what they call their pit strategy, how many times they'll stop and when." Isn't that a wonderful illustration, frankly, of the Christian life? You can't run a good race without strategically taking some stops for refueling along the way. If you read the letters of the apostles to the New Testament believer, You find them in this recurring theme, encouraging us to run the race, encouraging us to fight the fight, encouraging us to stay the course. In fact, on one occasion, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and effectively said, look, the reason I'm writing you is so that you'll not lose heart. That is, you won't stop doing the right thing. Even though it's one lap after another, Galatians 6.9. The writer of Hebrews encouraged these battle-worn Jewish believers by saying, Make sure you're focused on Jesus. Consider Him who endured such hostility against Himself. Consider Him, think about Him, so that you will not lose heart. Hebrews 12.3. Eugene Peterson paraphrased Romans twelve, eleven to twelve to read, keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant, don't quit and pray all the harder. The apostle John, as we're going to discover, doesn't want us gambling risking another lap without spiritual encouragement to fuel our spiritual race. So he's going to have us pull over on pit lane or pit row and get fueled and aflamed all over again for Christ. Now in chapter 2 of First John, we've arrived at verses 12 to 14. And it struck me that John pauses from giving these confrontational, in-your-face, you know, No holds barred, commands, challenges, demanding changes. And he he pulls us over and basically lists blessings, positive perspectives. Even optimism is found in this paragraph. And there are six positive statements or encouraging, we'll call them six refreshing facts of encouragement. Now, as we get into this paragraph, I want you to notice right away that you'll notice John is going to encourage everybody in the race. He's going to encourage children. He's going to encourage young men, those older in the faith, young adults in the faith. And then he's going to encourage fathers. All need encouragement. Every one of us in the assembly today will need what he has to say. Now what I want to do is divide our exposition of this paragraph along the lines of these six statements, these six refreshing facts. And the first one is this, your slate of sins has been forgiven, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Now you need to understand that though he'll refer to children a little later in this paragraph as those who are newborn ones. He's actually referring to the entire body with this general term for children, technia. It literally refers to anybody who's been born again, no matter what age you're in. So this is sort of an opening categorical statement to all the children of God, to all those who've come by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. Alone, And the Bible, as you know in the New Testament, if you've been in the faith long enough, you know that the Bible refers to us as the children of God. The children of God. Same word, technia, is used by John in his gospel account where he says, But as many of you as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John 1 verse 12. Now the opening line here in 1 John 2, 12, then is actually referring to every Christian. He'll change the word in verse 13 and talk about those who've just come to faith. But in verse 12, he's referring to every one of us, no matter what your age, no matter what your stage in this walk of spiritual maturity. And it's interesting to me that he wants every one of us to be reminded of something incredibly amazing and encouraging. And this is something that can beat you down. He says, look, I want all of you to know that all of your sins have been forgiven by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on that cross that just moments earlier we were reminded to cherish. We are all children of God, not because we've earned our way into the family, not by the merit of the sinner, but because of the infinite merit of the Savior. No matter how young or old you are in the faith, you've discovered that one of the most discouraging, disheartening things the enemy of your soul attempts is to try and literally bury you in the depths of your sins, right? Your own depravity, the failing and the falling of your flesh. And one of the most encouraging things, evidently, to John that you can do is not to argue with him, but to agree with him. But say, oh, you're not going far enough. Let me take you to the cross. See, all that's been dealt with judicially, and my standing now is one of having been forgiven completely of all of my sins. You see, John isn't pulling us over into pit lane and saying, you know, little children, I'm going to write you here because I want you to really think about yourself as really better people than you think about yourself. So I want you to pull up that low self-image of yours and, you know, get back into the race. No, not hardly. He's, he's effectively reminding us all that we happen to be sinners, but that our sins have all been paid for by Christ and wiped off the slate forever. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of "...of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins." Colossians 1.13. The risen Lord blinds temporarily Saul on that Damascus road, redeems him, and then commissions him to take the gospel, which will open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light so that they may receive forgiveness of sins." Acts 26 verse 18. found it interesting to discover that over the past 15 years, actually ending in 2007, one evangelical seminary conducted a survey among nearly 1,000 Muslims who had converted to Christianity during those same 15 years, 1991 to 2007. And they were asked the same question. And By the way, these Muslims were surveyed from 50 different ethnic groups and represented 30 different countries, so they're not you know, interviewing the same neighborhood. These new believers were asked, what was it about Christianity that made you risk your life and all of your relationships? And place your faith in Jesus Christ. And one of those often repeated answers from all of them was the simple fact that they could never be certain of the forgiveness of their sins. But the Christians and the Christian gospel they heard about, the Christians they met, were absolutely convinced on the basis of God's word that they had been forgiven. No matter how old you get, this is a refreshing, refueling fact. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin you will ever commit, every one of them are already known. They are already nailed. The body of Christ to the tree. Your slate has been forgiven. You confess regularly daily so that you can have fellowship restored, but you're standing And your slate is now, as it were, invisible to the alert and all-seeing eye of God who's chosen to forget, to cast them into the sea and remember them no more. Fact number two, your eternal security is guaranteed by God's own signature. Did you notice, verse 12 again, your sins have been forgiven you for what? For his name's sake. He has signed his name to this pardon. This deal is established, and the security of our standing is based upon his signature. Your eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ isn't ratified by the credibility of your signature or mine. It's ratified, it's secured, it's guaranteed by the credibility of his signature alone your forgiveness your security is not permanent because god is concerned about you keeping your word he happens to be concerned about keeping his word so this is all true for his name's sake now that's that's the opening statement of john to all the children of god your slate of sins has been forgiven Cleaned, wiped away, the security of the believer is guaranteed. Now John is going to shift gears a little bit, and he's going to write to all of us in differing stages of spiritual maturity. He's going to write to children, and he's going to change the term to paideia. He's going to talk about someone who's new in the faith. He's going to talk to young men, and then he's going to finally talk to fathers. Now before we dive in, let me give you fact number three. Your satisfaction is now in a personal relationship. If you've been with us in this study, you've noticed that John has been telling us what to do and what not to do. He's confronted us with actions or the lack thereof. You might get the impression that satisfaction in the Christian life is going to be by following the set of rules. I really better get him down right. I mean, if I don't, and if I'm not perfect at this, you know, somehow my satisfaction in Him won't be what it is, and His in me will not be as well. So He effectively begins by reminding the most vulnerable among us, children, that the issue is not the rules; the issue is a relationship. Notice how He addresses at the end of verse thirteen, children. Again, He's changed this term. So paideia, this term refers to a young child still under the tutelage, still under the control, still under the teaching authority of their guardian or their parent. So he's referring to a believer who is still ignorant of much of the biblical truth that they have yet to learn, much of the gospel. They are unlearned, still being tutored in the basic elementary truths of the faith. They're still immature in the ways of grace. These are the little lambs Jesus commanded Peter and everyone who leads in the church after him to tend. All those who serve as elders, those who serve as leaders in the church are given the same command to feed the flock, including these little lambs. Give them care and give them guidance. And it's interesting, it's to this group that he reminds them they have a relationship. Because above all, they're going to think, I'm missing the rules. I'm not getting it all right. There's so much to learn. I mean, they can be easily intimidated. If you're new in the faith, I mean, you've left everything that you knew, and now everything's brand new. John says, I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. That's all I want you to think about. You know the Father. Of course, the other side of that coin is the Father knows you. You have someone who loves you dearly. You happen to have a perfect heavenly Father. Yes, you left everything, but you've gained a family and a, and a heavenly Father who is with you. You don't need to know much else at this point. Just pull over and be refreshed that you belong to Him, he belongs to you. Ah, It's as if John is saying, no, the little lambs, you you don't know so many things. You've never heard of so much stuff that you're going to hear from the pulpit or from conversations in the hallway. And and the Bible is new to you. you. You don't know the difference between the book of Malachi and the book of maps. I mean, you've never heard of ordinances. Maybe that's ammunition. Maybe we're storing it somewhere in a back room. You don't know what it means by fellowship. You're not too sure about communion. And you're not too sure about this These deacons, can they be trusted? You've spent your whole life cheering against those demon deacons. And now we're electing them in in the church. Children are susceptible, are they not? To viruses, to impulses, to weaknesses, to deceptions. You'd think that John would say, what I need to do to encourage you is, is give you ten things to memorize, then come back. Now he says, here's what I want you to focus on. Isn't it wonderful that you know you have a father and that he knows you? Focus on your father. Frankly, no matter how old you get in the faith, you discovered early that real satisfaction never comes from perfectly keeping a list of rules because by now you've discovered you can't. It's by developing a relationship with your Father who is in heaven. Fact number four, your service is in view of the final victory. Now, with that, he leaves children, newly born, and he moves to young men. Look at the middle part of verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, that is adult believers, young adult believers, because you have overcome the evil one. And you read anything and you think, I did. Doesn't feel like it. In fact, the battle's never been hotter or heavier. I mean, what does he mean by this? Well, John isn't saying that for young adults in the faith that the battle is over against the devil. The perfect tense verb is used, translated here, to overcome. It simply means they are assured of the outcome. You can understand John to be writing... I'm writing to you young men to remind you that a victorious outcome is already yours over the evil one. In other words, you are battling from the vantage point of ultimate victory. It may not feel like it, it may not seem like it, but our side wins and the devil's loses. Wouldn't that be encouraging to young people in the faith? Who engage in the heat of the battle, who aren't satisfied to sit around a polished doorknobs? I mean, they want to go win something. They want to go build something, they want to go dream and they want to reach their world. I've never been more encouraged by the young adults of our church reminding us to be on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're doing that as a church family locally and regionally and nationally and, and globally. Young people I mean, they, they, they nip at your heels, don't they? Let's go win something. Let's go do something. Think about church history. We're still talking about George Mueller. Why? Because at the age of 27, he said, I believe God wants me to start an orphanage. Okay, how much money do you have? Well, let's see, none. So I'm going to do it by faith alone. And at 27, he moves to Bristol, England, and begins his first, he opens his first orphanage without a nickel to his name. John Bunyan. Barely 32, gets thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, walks out of there with a manuscript of Pilgrim's Progress in his hand. William Booth, 36, when he founded the Salvation Army, moves into East London to reach those who are destitute with the gospel of Jesus Christ. David Brainerd has an amazing ministry to the American Indians. He starts it at the age of 25. That's such an incredible ministry that when he dies four years later, his life has provided a model For that ministry. William Carey is in his 20s when he senses God's direction to become a formal missionary. He's 32 when he lands in India and the church told him, You're out of your mind. But even the youth in the faith can get tired and weary. Even vigorous young men stumble. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary as they exchange their strength for His. Isaiah 40 was written to young men and women running the race. And their strength is not in themselves. That's what he's reminding us of here. Even though we're young, even though we're fueled, even though we're inflamed, our strength comes from God. In fact, John adds at the back end of verse 14, you might notice that, another comment to these faith-filled young warriors. Notice, you are strong. Why? Why? Well, the word of God abides in you. That is, it's made a home in you. Your, your commander is the spirit through this sword with which you fight. The term John uses here for the evil one is a biblical term for the devil. And it, in this word, this phrase, it depicts his character, his nature as vicious. And destructive, and one translates it utterly bad. Utterly bad. In fact, the word for evil is a word that refers to someone who is not simply utterly bad, but they're not satisfied unless they pull others down with them. That's a descriptive phrase of the devil. He's not happy being utterly bad. He wants to pull everybody else down with him. So how in the world will the young adult in the faith, growing, vibrant, visionary, ready to go, you know, in fact, what am I doing? It's been 13 seconds. It's only supposed to be 12. Let me back out. He wants you to be encouraged that your strength, fact number five, your strength is found in the sword of the Spirit. You notice that our strength is abiding in, dwelling in, being immersed in, saturated by the Word of God. Is it any wonder then that the enemy would seek to turn young adults in the faith against the truth of the reliability of Scripture? Is it any wonder then, as we're seeing the church in America slow down? In fact, many are saying we're not even growing, we're really only merging that at the crux of this battle, it is the reliability of Scripture. In fact, it isn't unusual to read some of these biographies of older faithful pioneers and even those more recent who at some point in their Christian experience, whether it was in college or, or, or wherever, they, they had a crisis in their life that related to whether or not the Bible was trustworthy. And I, I would encourage you, if you went out on the street today and you interviewed people, if you went to our own youth ministry and you talked to those that are serving, they'll tell you the, one of the critical issues is this book is really trustworthy. It really is your spiritual compass. It really is telling the truth. The great exodus that's taking place Today there's a fresh exodus, there's always been an exodus of those who weren't genuinely saved. But there is an an exodus that is now making news and gaining attention of those young adults between the ages of 18 and 29. Even secular journals and newspapers and universities, secular universities are doing their own studies based on the fact that they're watching this generation literally abandon the church, the evangelical church. One author reported that young adults who presently claim to believe in this faith, and I use that term fairly loosely, 2.6 million of them are going to leave their faith at some point between their 18th and 29th birthday. Now that's true. That means that 260,000 of them will leave Protestant evangelical churches every year, that's 712 who leave today, and 712 that leave tomorrow, and 712 that leave on Tuesday. And one of the the reasons for this is the simple fact that the Bible had little to do with their shallow faith to begin with. One author said that 18 to 29-year-olds have been reared by materialistic parents who effectively shoved God to the sidelines... Marginalized him out of their lives and thus developed their own view of God, who now resembles a moralistic, therapeutic deist that is some God that spouts the golden rule, wants everybody to love everybody, and really doesn't have anything to do with anything. He's way out there somewhere. And they found then that this God is easy to abandon. There's no call, there's no fight, there's no race, there's no sacrifice. He wants me happy. and So they found Him easy to abandon. To them the vision has been lost. God is no longer the God of historic, biblical revelation whose highest goal is His own holy glory to be longed for and to be lived for and to be anticipated and in the meantime demonstrated through the lives of those who claim him. The adults that they've grown up around in the home, in the church, weren't interested in running anything that looked like a race or fighting anything that looked like a good fight or staying the course, or persevering in responsibilities or relationships. They certainly didn't sacrifice anything for Christ or the church or the mission, so why bother? It evidently really doesn't matter. It's that generation that says, why not, if God doesn't pay off, go pursue some other idol? Josh McDowell reports in his 2006 findings, he says that 69% of evangelical 18-year-olds are going to leave the church after graduating from high school. LifeWay research concluded that 70% of Christian church attendees born after the year 2000, that means the oldest is 13 at this point, they're called millennials, that 70% of them are going to leave the church by the age of 23. One more, another poster by the name of Barner estimates in 2010, in a, in, a, in a release dated 2010, that of every five young evangelicals, four will disengage from the church by the time they reach this age of 29. If the truth is, if you're out there at all, if you're having conversations about the gospel, you know some of them. In fact, you know more than you want to know. I run into them all the time. And when I ask them about the gospel or faith, their first line begins with something like, I used to, but I don't anymore. In fact, this nationwide departure from the church of evangelicals, and I'm using that term somewhat loosely because it's a really loose term now, those 30 years of age and younger have been so noticeable in their departure that they've been given a new nickname, de-churched. <laughs> you had the unchurched, those that didn't have, didn't have, don't have any relationship within any assembly, no accountable partnership with the local assembly of believers. And now you have the de-churched. Now this isn't really a new problem. Now maybe what we're seeing is a groundswell of it, But you go all the way back to the first century, and John has to deal with the de-churched as well. And he will in chapter 2, and we're going to get there eventually, where he's going to say, look, they went out from us because they really were not of us. If they had really been of us, they would would not have left us, 1 John 2, verse 19. We'll get to that eventually. Now, there are some in the church. There are those who are writing who are more optimistic, who are saying that, As they watch this exodus, they're concluding that we really aren't going the way of England or the Netherlands, because as this generation is leaving the American church, they're only leaving externally. They're not leaving or departing from the faith internally. Hardly. One author boldly said it this way, this is not true. They are quitting the faith not just because they aren't happy with it. They're quitting the faith, and they will gladly tell you they no longer believe it. And again, the problem is the faith they once believed was shallow at best, corrupted at worst. The church was to them and their parents, a social gathering that you could take or leave. You certainly didn't serve. God was to them crafted as this grandfatherly genie whose greatest delight in life was patting you on the head and saying, no matter what you do, there, there, you're a good boy. Isn't it interesting to you to think about the fact that when Jesus faced the devil in the wilderness, he was 30. He's barely out of his 20s. And he's tempted in three ways. We don't have time to go back, but I'll just sort of summarize. Every one of those temptations basically said, you got to look out for yourself and you need to get whatever you want. In other words, if you're really following the true God as your father, why are you hungry and you should never worry about being hurt and you ought to have all the stuff you want? In every response, Jesus quoted scripture back to the devil. In fact, every response, all three times, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. I wonder if we had to face Satan and all we had was the book of Deuteronomy. How would we do? It was nothing but a sword fight. The devil is taking Scripture out of context. Jesus is quoting Scripture correctly within its context, and he effectively looks at the devil, and and his last response basically says, you lose. Those kingdoms of the world... You're going to lose them. Jesus sets the stage for every one of us who follow him in the battle against deception, the doctrines of demons, falsehood, self-centeredness, idolatry. John says to all those young adults in the faith, Who are in the battle, even though the race is long and the battle is fierce, and you got a long life ahead of you, at least you assume you do, you're gonna think, Am I gonna how can I keep up with this? I think it's fascinating that John says, Pull over, let me remind you You win in the end. You might lose a skirmish or two, but the war has already been decided. In fact, one author wrote that every time you engage in battle, remember you are facing a baffled, conquered enemy. Remind your heart of that. The reason he's so desperate is because he's already defeated. One more fact. Your Savior is the everlasting Sovereign. John now speaks to fathers in verse 13. You'll notice in verse 14, he says basically the same thing in both phrases. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. What an encouraging statement to make. These are the older saints who have not just grown old in the faith. They've grown up in the faith. You can be old and still in kindergarten spiritually, but he's referring here when he talks about fathers as those who've actually matured in the truth of who God is. You know that he is your everlasting sovereign. One author said that these people in the body are rich in faith and ripe in grace, I know that sounds like old fruit, about ready to fall off the, you know, the branch, but that's who we are. Now the perfect tense verb translated, you know him, who has been from the beginning, speaks of personal knowledge of him in the past and an abiding knowledge of him in the present. Knowledge gained by personal knowledge. Experience. These older believers in the faith know and cherish the truth that God is the God of ages past and their hope for years to come. Have you ever talked to a a faithful believer who's walked with the Lord for 40, 50, 60 years? Don't you just love it? Their perspective. Their confidence, their vocabulary is laced with assurance and trust in their eternal sovereign Lord. No wonder, as you remember, Titus encouraged the older men to persevere in faith and in love. We need them, don't we? And maybe you have someone like that. I have the privilege every Sunday morning, as you know, being called by one of them who is not only my biological father but a spiritual father. He called me at 7 o'clock. I answered, hey, Dad, how you doing? And his response was, well, I am the recipient of unmerited grace. I said, Dad, why don't you preach for me? I, I just, I'm, I'm not there right now. No wonder we sing of the faith of our fathers, these kinds of people, who in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword, oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whene'er we hear that glorious word, faith that kind of faith of our Father's holy faith. Oh, may we be true to Thee, holy faith, till death. That's sung by people who understand there's a race on. There's a fight afoot. Two thoughts come to my mind by way of application. The first one is this. No matter what stage you are in spiritually, you don't opt out of the battle. You see, all three stages of maturity here have to pull over. John knows they all need it. you got to get refueled. Why? Because every stage faces battles. You might be new in the faith and think, you know, if I can just get to the point where you guys are, I'm, wow. I can put away my sword. No. In fact, I remember as a young seminary student in my twenties, sitting down in the office of a, a really old guy. He was in his early sixties. <laughs> Saying to him, Doctor Peterson, I I I can't imagine at your age how easy the battle must be. He just smiled and he said, Stephen, the older I get, the harder, more difficult the battle becomes. Was he ever right? No matter what stage you're in spiritually, you don't opt out of the battle. Secondly, no matter where you are in your spiritual walk, you never outgrow the need to pull over, (laughs) get refueled. John the Apostle would have us consider refueling on these truths: your slate of sins has been forgiven. Your safety is guaranteed by God's signature. Your satisfaction is in a personal relationship. Your service is in view of the ultimate victory. Your strength is found in the sword of the Spirit. And your Savior is the everlasting Sovereign. You bow your heads for just a moment. Our invitation is, I hope, clear that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've yet to become a, a newborn In the faith, but perhaps God's Spirit is provoking in your heart that today is the day to be spiritually born again. You've been in the battle, and maybe it's been a tough one today, or the last few days, or the last few weeks, months, maybe years. Maybe you'd like to do what others have already done today and say, I I just want to pray. I need refueling. Thank you for the truth that we've learned together. I just need to pray as I get back in the race. Father, thank you for pulling the entire assembly over. Not just those who are vulnerable and weak in their young and new faith. Not just those who are impassioned with the mission. And not just those who are older in the faith who should be among the first to admit how challenging and difficult the battle is and how much we depend upon the unmerited grace of you, our sovereign Lord. So we thank you for this pit stop and these truths. Most of all, that you love us with a love we can only refer to Never begin to understand. And we would respond today as we end this assembly by saying back to you through faltering lips, we love you too.